With that, we're going to be kind of all over. We're going to continue on what we were talking about kind of last week. And we're going to be looking at the seven statements that Jesus said from the cross. And so, kind of to set the stage, Jesus spends Passover with his disciples. We looked about this last week. It was during this time, it was this last meal. He institutes communion with his, his friends, his closest friends. And it's during this time there's a lot of chaos going on. A disagreement breaks out with the disciples about who's the greatest. And Jesus responds to that by washing their feet. Um, they end up in the garden where Jesus is betrayed by Judas, who he, he, as, Judas, as Judas is greeting him with a kiss and saying, Rabbi, to kind of let everybody know that he's the one that's supposed to be taken. Jesus says, friend, you know, do what you uh, came to do. And we talked last week especially about Peter as he followed at a distance and was kind of denying Jesus. Now Jesus, although he saw him, there was this level that he cared for him and he loved him. And I'm excited about, not this Sunday, well, I'm excited about Sunday as well, but in, in two weeks from now we get to see how Jesus restores Peter. But as everything's going on, Jesus gets taken. We looked at the trials and how he, he was taken from Caiaphas' house to the Sanhedrin to Pilate and how he was each time beaten a little bit more, by the end, he was so badly beat. He was so badly, his back was bare to the bone, his beard was ripped out, he was bleeding profusely, he was so beat up, so wounded that it tells us um, in the Old Testament that he didn't even look human anymore. As Pilate was attempting to declare him free and let him go, the people still cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And so Jesus was declared guilty, essentially, even though he had done nothing wrong and was taken to the cross. And so we're going to look at the first thing he says in Luke chapter 23. As Jesus is taken to the cross, their plan was successful. Jesus carries up his cross up this hill outside the city walls where his raw, bleeding back, exposed to the wood. And he carries it up and they nail his hands and his feet to the cross. Right through the nerves and the wrists. And as they take up the cross, they place it into the, the hole. I'm sure it jarred his body, his bones, his, his joints. There, the king of the kings, the creator of the world, hangs. Hangs on the cross. And there's a sign above his head that says, King of the Jews. The Messiah in, indeed was lifted up. And Luke 1, 23, verse 32 says this, and this is the, the first thing that Jesus says really from the cross. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The first words of Jesus in excruciating pain, you know the word excruciating, we actually get that word from the crucifixion. That's where we get the word. It was so unbelievably painful, so much torment, that it created, a, we use that word to this day, excruciating. And in this moment of excruciating pain, the first words that comes from the, our Lord, amongst the pain, the mocking, the humiliation, Jesus speaks words of forgiveness. He speaks words of forgiveness. And in the midst of 
what they were saying. He's saying, Lord, forgive them. They're mocking him and saying, Jesus, why don't you, if you're the Messiah, why don't you come off the cross? Why don't you come down? And the irony of the whole thing is because he remained on the cross, they were able to be forgiven. His prayer was answered because he remained. And then we see in John chapter 19, we see the second thing that he, is, he says. We see that he, he forgives. The second thing is he honors. John 19, verse 25. It says, and when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Jesus took care of his mom. It's just kind of a cool thing, but I think even greater than that, as he's asking, we know the disciple whom he loved is John, the apostle John, to take care of his mom. In between the pain and the grasping for every breath, Jesus fulfills um, the first commandment with a promise, right? If you remember the Ten Commandments, it says, honor your father, father and mother, for if you do, like you'll have a long life. It's the first commandment with a promise. And Jesus fulfills that, that command with the promise of long life. But what's crazy is that Jesus didn't get to reap the benefit of that promise of honoring his mom and taking care of her because his life was cut short. But because of Jesus he made that promise possible. And then we see the third thing, it's Jesus saves. There's two thieves that were both guilty, that were nailed next to him. They were, they were guilty. Like they were thieves, they stole, they got caught, they were dying, just like he was. One was mocking him, one was in a sense believing. And I love this story because as they're, one on the right, one on the left, as they're all dying together, you know, one's playing like, why don't you come off the cross and save us and save yourself? And the other one is simply says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Luke chapter 23. And Jesus says to him, in verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged rallied against him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him and said, do, not you, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, truly, I, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus said this that you'll be with me today in paradise because he knew that he was paying for this man's sins this very moment, right? I think that even the fact of the matter that even the mocker that's saying save yourself, Jesus was dying to save him as well if he wanted. What I love about this story, though, is that the thief did nothing. He didn't get baptized. He didn't say a prayer a certain way. He didn't clean up his life first. He simply trusted Jesus. All he said was, remember me. Like, his act of faith was simply saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom, declaring like, I, you're the Messiah, and when you come in, 
remember me. And what I also find interesting is that Jesus didn't end his suffering. He didn't end the consequence of his sin. He didn't take him off the cross. That man died that day, but he was saved and he was forgiven that very moment. And he was in paradise with Jesus, not later, that day. The first one in the kingdom was a thief. And as, dark, as, as suffering keeps going, we see that Jesus is suffering deeply. Darkness comes over the whole earth. It's noon, which is supposed to be the brightest time of the day. But darkness comes over the whole earth. And it's for three hours that darkness is covering from the, the brightest parts of the day, noon to three. Jesus already weak and bleeding and dehydrated and um, struggling for each breath, suffering deeply. Something crazy happened, something that had never happened in the, ever, not even in history. See, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have always existed for all of time together in this loving relationship, caring for, preferring one another, right? And for the first time ever in existence, ever, we see Jesus say these words in Mark 15, 33. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? For the first time ever, Jesus was alone. Jesus was separated from the Father. He was separated from that relationship. The Father who loves a son turned, in a sense, his back on his son. And Jesus is crying out, like, why have you forsaken me? For us, this is so significant because we have to understand that the reason why God essentially abandoned Jesus or turned his back on him is because the sins of the world were being placed on Jesus. The sins of the world, my sin, your sin, all of our sin. And God, being this holy and perfect God, cannot be with sin. In fact, he has to judge sin. And we see that it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that for our sake, Jesus, or God made Jesus sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Literally, he became like the sin was put on him to the point where it was what he was in a sense. He was, he was judged for us. The sin of the world was placed on him. And he was abandoned in a sense by God. The Father turns away. The cool part about this, though, is that Jesus was separated from God for our sin so that we wouldn't have to be separated from God. Jesus was separated from God so that we could not just not be separated, but that we could be brought near. That Jesus, in a sense, was take, like his place at the table and the relationship of the God was, in a sense, at that moment removed so that we could be invited to the table. We could be invited in to that relationship. That's what was taking place. And it's sad because Jesus was abandoned, but we will never have to be. This, in my opinion, is far greater suffering than all the pain he's experienced. His relationship with his father was severed. And for that moment, he got to experience every human being who doesn't have that relationship, right? He got to experience the full weight of sin, the full weight 
of the separation that sin causes. He took that, he took everybody's brunt of that so that we would not have to be. And as we get closer to the end, you know, with, with crucifixion, you don't die from the nails and you don't die from the blood loss typically. What happens is you die from suffocation. As you get weaker and weaker, you're needing to push up on those nails that are in your feet so that you can grab your breath. And then you fall back down. And most, most people that are being crucified end up having their shoulders dislocated and they end up experiencing so much pain that they, they just eventually just, just can't breathe anymore. And so it usually takes a very, very long time. But Jesus, because the amount of physical trauma that he's endured, is dying very, very fast. In fact, it took about six hours. He's very, very dehydrated, massive blood loss, immense stress on the body. In fact, many would speculate that, that even if they would have taken him off the cross, he still probably would have died with the amount of trauma that his body experienced. So the, one of the fifth thing that he says in John chapter 19, verse 28, he calls out and he says, I thirst. And this verse, it's a promise and essentially a pro- of a, what was prophesied before about the Messiah. Verse 29 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there so that they put a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop branch and they held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he says, It is finished. And we'll come to that in a few minutes bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. I like how in the midst of all of this, as he's experienced the full human experience, something as simple as thirsting. Like he was thirsty and he's crying out. He's under the sun. Well, now it's darkness. And he says, I thirst. But we see in John that, it does, he, that this, he did this to fulfill. Like even, even on the cross, He's being intentional with fulfilling prophecy so that people might believe and trust in him. Psalm, where he's talking about Psalm 69:21 is what this is referring to. And it says, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. That's what it's referring to. But as I was reading through some of the Psalms, I was reminded that, that one of the most fascinating prophecies about Jesus comes from Psalm 22. David described crucifixion. Crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet, right? It hadn't even been invented yet. Like, Rome really figured it out and dialed it in. That's like a thousand years prior. And I was thinking about Psalm 22 as it's talking about the Messiah, and I just want to read verse 14 through 18. It's from the perspective of Jesus on the cross, and he says, I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing... They cast lots. This was written long, long before 
Jesus ever went to the cross. You know, in fact, most of the time, Romans, when they crucified people, they wouldn't always nail their hands and their feet. They would just put them up there with ropes. It would have the same effect. And so even the fact that his hands and his feet were pierced is fulfilling a greater story about how God was going to redeem the world. Jesus has suffered. He's experienced thirst. He's experienced cruelty and pain. He knows what it's like. And we come to the last two things that Jesus said. And I just read it in verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he says, it is finished. And he bowed his head down and he gave up his spirit. There's not a better three words in all of Scripture than that, at least for us. It is finished is so rich with meaning. The word means, it was really tetelestai was what he used, but it, the word means paid in full. Paid in full. That's what Jesus declared. When he declared tetelestai, we translate it, it is finished, um, but it also means paid in full. And the reason why that is so important for us is that the it is finished part, I think, is beautiful, and that is every requirement that God has placed on human beings so that human beings could be in a perfect a relationship with a perfect and holy God. Everything that's required for humans in our sinful, broken state to be in relationship with a holy God and that we are unable to fulfill, Jesus fulfilled to the point of his death, all the way to his death. But with all of that, because we have failed in our ability to live out the law that God had demanded, that all the things that required for human beings, because we have failed consistently in a crude debt because of our sin. We've missed the mark. We were trying, right? Like we're aiming for the target and we just can't hit it, right? Like we just aren't perfect. As we're accruing debt that's deserving of death, that as we're accruing debt that's deserving of God's wrath, Jesus paying for it on the cross is what took place. He took our place. And so he declaring paid in full is he saying, I have paid your debt and your debt, my debt. It's paid in full. It is completely paid. Your bill is wiped out. You're paid in full. There's nothing more that we need to do to work off our debt. There's nothing more that we need to do to please God in any other way that would cause him to be like, okay, now you've done enough. Now you can be my child. Everything necessary to be done, both in righteousness, but also in paying for sin, Jesus did. And so he paid our debt in full. Every punishment we deserve for our rebellion was paid and satisfied. And I just was thinking about this, that so often I talk to so many people that feels like they owe God, or that they need to operate a certain way, and if they don't, they feel like they're letting God down, or that if they um, screw up and stuff, they need to work that off a little bit or they need to do more for God to be pleased with them, that they haven't done enough, that they don't do enough, or maybe they've screwed up too much. And I want to say to you tonight, the words that Jesus said, that it is finished, that it's paid in full, that there's nothing you can do Nothing you can do that would cause God to love you any less. And there's nothing you can do for him to love you anymore. 
There's nothing that you can do for him to suddenly say, you know what? I'm done with you. There's nothing you can do for God to say, you know what? I'm disappointed in you. You didn't work out the way that I thought you would. I'm done. I sh- I'm sure that you have heard those words, but it hasn't been from God. You have a father in heaven that's different than your father, than your mother, than whoever it is that spoke those words in your life. And when he says it's finished, he means it. There's nothing more you need to do. Like the thief, sometimes it's simply saying, remember me. It's simply saying, yes, Lord. When the father sees you, he sees his son. He sees his son's righteousness that we can't achieve, and he sees his son's death on the cross. It's finished. And when we are in those spaces where we feel that we need to do more, when we're in these spaces where we feel like maybe I need to, I need to do more so that God's happy with me, or maybe when we're in these spaces where we say, I need to work off all this junk that I've done, not to be harsh, but what we're saying in those moments is that, Jesus, your death wasn't enough. You didn't do enough. You didn't live enough righteousness. You didn't die the death. I need to add to that. It is finished. It's finished. He loves you. It is paid in full. Which leads us to our very last words that Jesus says in Luke chapter 23. Verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. It was darkness over the whole earth until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last And now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, certainly this man was innocent. John chapter 10 says, Jesus said this, he says, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Jesus in his last breath, shows his authority over life and death. In his last breath, he shows his, his power over death. He's like, you're not taking my life, I'm giving it up. Jesus gave himself up willingly. This wasn't an accident. Jesus' death wasn't an accident. It wasn't something that was like, man, that was a bummer that happened. He came for this. This is part of his plan. He came to live the life that we can't live so he could die the death that we deserve. He told his disciples about it all the time. It was prophesied throughout Old Testament. This was the plan. And in his last breath, as he's giving up his spirit, it says that the veil in the temple, the the curtain tore from top to bottom. Let me tell you what. That is so significant. You see, because of sin and because of brokenness, human beings have always been separated from God. 
The presence of God, the creator of the universe, chose to dwell in one little tiny room, in one temple, in one spot in the entire earth. He chose to let his presence dwell in that space. But because God was so powerful and so holy and so perfect, he had to have a curtain that was anywhere from like six inches to 12 inches thick to separate it so that if humans couldn't wander in there on accident and get completely wiped out. And he allowed human beings to come into his presence one time a year, but had to have a ton of sacrifice happen. They had to come in with blood and there's throwing blood over everywhere. They come in and they can be in God's presence. Human beings were separated from God. But Jesus, in his last breath, tore that separation down. We are now able to be in God's presence and be with God and be in relationship with God with nothing hindering us. Not a temple, not our sin, nothing. And God, in his goodness, says, you know what? I'm no longer going to dwell in these buildings, this temple where people have to spend large effort to get to and spend money and to travel to so that they could be in the presence of God. God said, I am going to take my spirit and I'm going to put it inside human beings and that is going to be my temple now. The church, followers of Jesus, is where God's spirit dwells. And this is why God is so good. He goes, now rather than humans having to travel and with much effort, come and be in my presence. I am going to send my presence to, the, to people. I'm going to send my temple to your neighbor. I'm going to send my temple to your coworker. I'm going to send my temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, in his last breath, tears down that wall of separation, that veil that separated human beings from God's presence. That relationship with God, the access to God, had been restored. The Holy Holies is open to everyone. And Jesus was then, as he died, they pierce his side, and blood and water comes out showing that he, had, he is in truly, indeed, dead, dead. Really dead. They take him off the cross, they place him in a tomb, they put a rock over that tomb, and the Roman guards seal it so that nobody comes and steals the body. And everybody went home for Passover to celebrate the Passover feast. Little did they know that the Passover lamb had been sacrificed. His blood had been shed so that all in the house could be saved, that death could pass over. It didn't pass over Jesus. It didn't pass over the lamb, but it's passing over us. And it was during this time that the firstborn son was not spared, right? Where the Passover lamb was, was killed so that it would save the firstborn. The firstborn son of God was not spared so that we could be. And that is what we remember tonight. That is what we remember. This is what the disciples remembered as they gathered, I'm sure, as Jesus, after he ascended to heaven, they're like, man, let's write all this stuff down. And they're remembering these sayings, remembering these moments as they sat around the table, they remembered. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to close with a time of music and worship. It's going to be, we're going to sing a couple more songs, but it's going to be more um, just chill as we want to have a time to come to the table as Jesus um, came to the table essentially with his disciples.
We're going to have the standard little cups up here if you'd like, but we're also going to have um, bread and we're going to have juice available. You can come. The thing that I wanted to encourage, and I hope I can.